0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Everyone knows that the Christmas season has become synonymous with movies. And in recent years, the entertainment industry has become obsessed with prequels. And I personally am a fan. I'm a fan of prequel-type movies. Now, a true prequel is a backstory to an original story, And so examples would be uh, some things like this. So many of you probably have seen, I'm sure most of you have seen The Wizard of Oz. If you haven't, you need to get with it. Um, But if you may have seen the Broadway show Wicked, which is the backstory of how some of the characters became, and it's really cool to watch because if you watch Wicked, you see certain characters that you don't expect. They end up becoming characters in the film Wizard of Oz, and you realize, oh, that's how that person became, this character. And then um, my students hate when I say this, but... Uh, When it comes to superhero movies, I've never been a huge superhero fan, but if I had to choose, it would be Batman as the best, the best genre of superhero films. And, uh, And I think... I especially love the prequel Batman Begins because you see kind of how he becomes this character. And I would say that, that Batman, out of the superhero genre, that Batman is probably the most relatable character because all of us can relate to being a billionaire with an amazing car. You know, we all can relate to that. And, um, but I love Batman. And then um, then we come to, you know, those Christmas movie classics like this one, um, Star Wars, right? And can I confess, is this a safe place? Can I confess something else to you? Um, I'm also not a huge Star Wars fan either, right? Um, some, you can clap for that. You can clap, all five of you. But, um, but I, I watched them when I was a kid a little bit, but I hadn't seen much of them until recently when the new ones started coming out. And uh, if you don't know, uh, Brandon Brewer, our Our Global Outreach Pastor, he is our resident movie critic here at TBC on staff. He loves films. He goes and watches movies by himself. Like, that is a problem, you know? Um, But he loves film, and so he's at our house the other night, we're having dinner, and he said, have you seen the the latest Star Wars episode nine? I said, yeah, we saw it. And then my wife kind of rolls her eyes and Brandon says, what's that about? And he says, my wife says, Dave doesn't like Star Wars. And he says, oh, but have you seen episodes one, two, and three? And I said, I really haven't seen them. And he said, oh, you have to go back and watch the first episodes. So over the holidays, my kids, and really my kids more than me, but they sat down and watched the episodes one, two, and three. And I would kind of check in, and so I kind of got the gist of the story, right? But it is really interesting when you watch some of these prequel-type films that you start to see that um, you start to empathize and relate a bit more to the character because you start to see this is how this person became this character. And so Darth Vader is not just some random guy wearing black trying to take over the the galaxy, but you start to relate more to the the person of Anakin Skywalker and how he's trying to protect this woman that he says he loves. And so you, you find the characters a little bit more relatable when you start to see the backstory in some of these films. Certain characters become more illuminated. We see why they are the way they are. And so that's my hope today as we're going to end up in a moment in Genesis chapter 21. Before we get there, I need to give you the backstory, the prequel to Genesis chapter 21. So my goal is to shed some light on two people, namely Abraham and Abimelech. So look back at Genesis chapter 20. We miss this chapter a few weeks ago because that was the week that Chase got sick and Danny pinch hit and did a great job um, last minute for him. So this is Genesis chapter, recapping Genesis chapter 20. I will say that I think we owe you all an apology. We, we, we traumatized you with Sodom and Gomorrah and then Lot and his daughters. Then it was Merry Christmas, everybody, right? Is how it went. And so now we're right back into the story of Genesis chapter 20. We're look back at Genesis 20 verse 2. After the episode with Lot and his daughters, the story picks up here. Abraham and Sarah have now entered into new territory, and no one knows them. And so here we are in verse 2 of Genesis 20. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This would have been custom for kings back then to do. If somebody came into an area, it would be customary for a king to take one of the, the single women into his harem as a wife. And so this isn't the first time this has happened with Sarah and Abraham. This happened back with Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12. Remember the story? So why does Abraham keep doing this? Well, he's afraid. He's worried that they're going to see his wife's beauty and they're going to kill him and then take her as a wife. If you go back even earlier into early parts of Genesis, Abraham has this really weird conversation with his wife where he says, he says, "Sarah, here's a deal." You are so beautiful, they're going to kill me and take you as a wife, so tell them that you're my sister. That's a weird compliment, isn't it? Thanks for the the beauty compliment, but is there a different plan for how we're going to handle this? So what happens here with Abimelech, instead of killing Abraham, what do they do? They don't kill him, but they still take her as a wife. And Abraham seems perfectly okay with someone taking his wife as long as he doesn't die. Priorities. Now, it really begs the question, what's his plan after they take Sarah? Because you would think that, that when you realize they're not going to kill you, why don't you just tell them the truth about the situation? So in both instances, his plan is short-sighted and fear-driven. And so after Abimelech takes his, Sarah... God then appears to Abimelech in a dream, and God says in the dream, you're a dead man for taking another man's wife. Now, I've never talked in my own dreams, but Abimelech talks back to God in the dream somehow, and he says, I didn't know. I didn't know this was another man's wife. And God says, give her back, or you'll die with your whole family. So he warns Abimelech in this dream. The next morning, Abimelech gets up, and he tells his household what's happened, and now everyone in this house is afraid at what God might do. Abimelech does the same thing that Pharaoh did in Genesis chapter 12. He goes and calls on Abraham, and he asks him, why did you do this to me? And here's, here's Abraham's response in Genesis 20, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So do you see the irony in that statement? Abraham was afraid that they didn't fear God. So so who's the one not fearing God? Abraham. He feared man more than he feared God. And then in verse 12, he drops this bombshell. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So I know that's kind of a bombshell for some of you that they really were half brother and half sister, same father, different mother. And that's really the real reason why Chase got sick that week. He didn't want to talk about any of that stuff in Genesis chapter 20, right? Right? So as strange as it sounds this wasn't all that strange back then because the law had not been given Levit- Leviticus chapter 18 which speaks against it had not been given yet so when Abraham says that she's his sister it's a half truth but a half truth is still what it's still a lie a half truth can be worse than an outright lie because when you tell a half truth you're still convinced of your own righteousness because there's a seed of truth to it. So you think, well, I'm doing, this is okay. It's, it's okay for me to do. But when you straight up lie, there's no pretense about that. You know what you're doing. So not only does he lie, but he asks Sarah to lie for him. And he says, at every place to which we come. So they've been doing this everywhere as a habit to protect themselves. And at least twice it backfires. And it doesn't seem like Abraham had a backup plan for when she's taken by someone else. So what is really fueling all of this? I want you to look closely at verse 13. It says, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Do you hear the blame in that statement? It might be subtle, but when God shows up in his life, in the earlier part of the story, and ask him to leave his homeland and, and, and go on this long journey where God's going to lead him. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I think it might be subtle, but it sounds like he's blaming God. And when God commands him to leave his homeland, he gets a little bit scared. A lot scared. And he's fearful. And this little plot is a way to manage his Fear. Now, I know for all of us here in the room, leaving home is scary. Like, i I, I show you the picture. I mean, my parents have lived in the same house since I was born. So the home I go back to is the home that I grew up in. And leaving home, I was 19, and I'll never forget the day. I got in a car that I bought, and I drove all the way to Texas by myself to a place that I was going to go. And here we are 20-some years later, right? But getting in that car that day and driving down that long road, and i never forget my mom was going off to, she was a teacher, she was going off to school that day, and she had to say goodbye, And she and I got to the end of the road, and she went one way, I went the other direction, and we waved. That was a hard day for all of us. But leaving home is hard. Leaving home is difficult. But imagine if it's hard enough for us in today's society, imagine what it was like For Abraham to leave everything and know, I might not see these people ever again, my family. And so he sets off and he's fearful. And so this little plot is a way to manage his fear. That's often what sin is, is our attempt to manage fear. If you want to know where you and I might fall into temptation... Ask yourself this question. What am I most afraid of? Is it a fear of being single? A fear of failure? A fear of not having enough money? A fear of fading beauty? A fear of not being accepted by other people? How about a fear of discomfort? Or a fear of missing out? As my students would say, FOMO. Or a fear of no one knowing who you are. I think what drives us on social media much of the time is this fear of irrelevance. This fear of... No one's going to know who I am. And so we fall oftentimes into sin because sin becomes our way of managing fear. I want you to see so much of the time when we sin, it's not just because there's a backstory to it. There's almost always a backstory. And for Abraham, this little compromise was his way to manage fear. And the most surprising thing in this narrative is that despite his sin, God still blesses him. Why does God do that? He does it because of grace? And after Abimelech finds out, he gives Sarah back to Abraham plus servants and livestock. So let's get this straight for a minute. Abraham sins and then gets his wife back and a whole bunch of loot. So what's happening in this story? I think the writer's trying to show us something, that Abimelech fears God more than Abraham does. Sometimes the unbeliever can look more righteous than the believer. I will often have students I'm not saying this is accurate, but it's what I will hear sometimes. I'll have students in, my, in our youth ministry that will say things like, I feel like my non-Christian friends have better community than my Christian friends. And so they might start to pull away from the church because there's just stuff going on. I'm not saying that's a right assessment, but we see it sometimes where the unbeliever might look more righteous externally than the believer and I think we see that here with Abimelech and Abraham. I want you to fast forward over to Genesis 21 now. We'll skip over, of course, the birth of Isaac. We discussed that last week. But Genesis 21, looking at verse, verses 22 to 24. So now here we are, three to four years later, and it says, at that time, Abimelech and Phechol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you, will deal kindly, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abimelech has been threatened by God in a dream on Abraham's behalf. And now he's seen God give them a newborn at 90 and 100 This is why he says a statement, God is with you in all that you do. So for three to four years, Abimelech's been watching from a distance, this family, the family that God showed up and intervened and said, rescued Sarah, and and Sarah went back to Abraham. He gives them all this stuff. And so for three to four years, he has seen this family from a distance, and now he sees God intervene miraculously and give them a baby at 90 and 100. This is why he can say, God is with you in all that you do. Remember last week we talked about this? After Isaac's birth, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Abimelech was one of those people that's just in disbelief at what God has just done. Abimelech noticed what God did in their lives, and this is, I think, really important because their lives were to testify to the power of God, to those around them. They weren't chosen just to be chosen. They were chosen to be a blessing and to point people to Yahweh, God. Now, most people believe that this episode happens three to four years after Genesis chapter 20. And so far, Abimelech believes two thoughts about Abraham. Abraham. God is with him in all he does, and Abraham is a liar. So there's those two contradictions that Abimelech believes about Abraham. God's with him, but he's a liar, and he's deceptive. Now, why would he think that? I mean, they've got some history together. He is saying to Abraham, he comes to Abraham a few years later and says, please don't lie to me, Abraham. The last time you did that, your God showed up in a dream and told me I was going to die, and it was very scary. And so he's pleading with Abraham as he appeals to peace. And on the one hand, he doesn't trust Abraham, but he also can't deny what God's done in his life. He's got this healthy fear of Abraham. Why else would a king and a commander of an army show up seeking peace with a shepherd nomad. I'm trying to think of a modern-day parallel for this. Someone powerful, stooping down to a farmer, a shepherd nomad, and and as they approach this person, they think to themselves, um, you know, we don't want any trouble. But Abimelech is saying that because he knows who the God of Abraham is. He at least knows about him. And so he feels worried or fearful, fearful or threatened by Abraham. I think it's important for us to realize in this story we have this, we have this unbeliever, this outsider, who is recognizing the hand of God in Abraham's life. I think a great question for us to ask is, do unbelievers see the hand of God in our lives? Do unbelievers see God's hand in our lives? I think we can learn something here about how Christians should relate to outsiders. I will often hear Christians say, especially where we live here, Christians will say things like, you know, we really shouldn't care what other people think about us. And on the one hand, that, is true, we shouldn't water down the gospel or compromise truth. But sometimes, Christians take this too far and excuse their own sinful behavior, I think. If someone has an issue with me, I want their problem to be with the gospel. The gospel should be the stumbling block, not my sin or my attitude or my tone. And to the one who says, it doesn't matter what people think out there think about you, I want to have you look quickly at 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is said about people that could be elders in a church. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The Bible tells us that a Christian should be concerned about what outsiders think of you. Again, not compromising the truth of the gospel, but we should be concerned about what outsiders think of us in the sense of integrity and honor and truth telling. Again, the Bible talks about people hating you because of Christ, but that's not what we're talking about here, because what outsiders think matters about our faith. Our integrity matters. Truth-telling matters. How we run a business matters. Working as an employee matters. What kind of student you are really matters. I know for a lot of students, I I know that that cheating is so commonplace today with how accessible it is, but are you someone that has integrity in everything that you do? Because people out there are watching you. And how outsiders perceive you does really matter. I heard someone say it this way. Sinning as a believer doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but we can lose our testimony. And you and I should care about the testimony. Romans 12, verse 18, talks about us living at peace. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, sometimes being at peace isn't up to us, but if it is, then we should strive for it. And listen, none of us are perfect. We're going to mess this up. But even if we do, it's not beyond redemption. There can still be redemption. And I want you to see that theme in this story. Look, look down at Genesis 21, verse 25. We start to see it here. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So what's happened here is Abimelech shows up to Abraham and wants to make this peace treaty. And Abraham says, before we make the treaty, I need to talk to you about something. Before I sign on the dotted line, we've got to discuss something. And it's about this well that Abraham dug that was stolen from him by Abimelech's men. So I want you to, let's, let's go up a few thousand feet now and look at what Abraham's doing. What is he doing in contrast to what he did back in Genesis 20? He is now standing up to a king, having a direct conversation. He's not dealing in deception now. He's not scared. He's not feeling the need to deceive this guy so he can protect himself. He is dealing directly with a situation with Abimelech and his commander. We talked about this at Christmas time. We talked about how we have to enter into conflict sometimes to bring about peace, and this is what Abraham's doing. He is approaching someone who is at least by world standards, more powerful than he is. But he's approaching this man directly and honestly and boldly. He's becoming a changed man. He's starting to have faith and know who he is. They're having this discussion over this water well which I know most of us think you know, big deal, but that's obviously a huge deal in any culture, but especially back then. Water is a valuable commodity, just as it is today. I saw in the paper, I think a couple weeks ago, how they were projecting uh, population growth for Texas and showing like, how much water we need versus how much population we're gonna have in the state. And it can be scary. Just ask California about that, right? I also read recently that only 2.5% of the world's water is fresh, and much of that's frozen. So only 1% of the world's water is even accessible to us. And much of that's not even drinkable. So when you really do the math of how much water there is on the earth today and how little there actually is for us to drink, it can be a scary thought, but as valuable as it is today, And as scarce as it is today in certain parts of the world, how much more back then? So Abraham had dug this well, and Abimelech's men seized the well. It's a big deal. Now, I know it might seem strange why somebody would fight over a well in the Middle East, but it happens sometimes, right? I appreciate that pity laughter right there. That was helpful. Thank you. Could you come at eleven o'clock too? That be yes, please. But I want you to see how he's changed here. A few years ago, um, a few years before, he cowered in front of kings. Before Pharaoh and Abimelech, he said, "She's my sister. Please don't kill me," because he feared the powerful, and this this fear led him into sin. But now he's got this faith and confidence knowing who he is. And he's starting to put his faith in God. Look down at Genesis chapter 21, verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Abraham knows that Abimelech doesn't trust him. So he says, to show you I'm telling you the truth about the well, I'm going to give you some sheep, oxen, and some lambs. Now in Genesis chapter 20, Abimelech was the one who gave to Abraham, and now he returns the favor. Remember, if we sin against someone, it's not beyond redemption. I think in this story, this is Abraham making it right. This is Abraham repenting when he does this act with Abimelech. So I want to ask us here, is there someone that you're not at peace with? And what would it look like to make it right? What is that first step to bringing about peace with you and someone that you're in conflict with? What does repentance look like for you? In that situation? What is the first step that someone has to take? We talked about this at Christmas. Our peacemaking will look like God's peacemaking. There's a gospel pattern of reconciliation between Abimelech and Abraham. And I didn't see this until late in the week, it just kind of appeared. But in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham commits the wrong. So back in Genesis 20, Abraham commits the wrong, but Abimelech gives him servants and livestock. And in this story, Abimelech's men do the wrong, but then Abraham gives the sacrifice. Do you see that? And we see the same pattern with Jesus. Because we wrong him, sin against him, rebel against him, but then he brings the sacrifice. You see, our peacemaking is always going to look like God's peacemaking. So in your situation, I think in whatever situation that you're in, you might be the one that sinned against, but we might have to be the one that initiates peace and, in a sense, bring the sacrifice and bear the sacrifice in initiation. Because... Our peacemaking will always look like God's peacemaking. It'll take on that pattern. It's also, I think, profound as we look at the story, we have this unbeliever initiating peace with the believer. If we have this unbeliever initiating peace with a believer, then how much more should God's people be at peace with each other? and be an example to the world of what God's peacemaking looks like. And also strive to be at peace with people that aren't believers. Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. I want you to look down at Genesis chapter 21, verses uh, 31 to 34. It says, therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines." So they named this place Beersheba, which means well of the oath. That means every time he would go get water, he would remember and recall this oath that he made with Abimelech. Then he, after after Abimelech leaves, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree. Now why does he do this? Remember, Back when Abraham started off, he was a man of fear, and now he's becoming a man of faith. This tree was his way of remembering God's faithfulness in his life. You know, every every new year, people commit to spiritual disciplines, fasting, prayer, Bible reading, giving, and I want to introduce you to one that we often forget. And it's the spiritual discipline of remembering. This was Abraham's way of remembering God's faithfulness. And so what are some ways that you can remember God's faithfulness in your life throughout the years? One of the ways that I've done this in the past is through, um, is through journaling. And no, this is not a diary. It's a journal. And so what I will do is I'll take certain passages, read through them and kind of write down notes of what God's showing me over the years. And listen, I've not been very good. I'll go years without doing it at all. Then get back into it. And I've been not doing it for the last couple of years. So I decided to get a new journal and, um, decided to, uh, first week of January, I got into it and I opened this thing up and I I started writing. and I got like a whole page and a half on January 2nd. And uh, so here we are And so I get my notes out, and I was so proud of myself, and I close the thing up, and then I realize my first entry was on the back page upside down. (laughs) So 2020 is going to be a great year. But listen, whenever whenever I'm in the desert, I love going back and looking through what God's done in my life, because it's amazing. I'll read stuff, and I'll think, that didn't even sound like me. I mean that's that's pretty good, and there are seasons of time in life where I'm writing stuff and and God's doing things in my life, and I love going back after the last service. Someone said that um, David Jeremiah talks about this journaling, and he says going back and looking at what you have written years prior is called harvesting. You go back and look and see what God's done in your life, and it's a way of remembering and a way of worshiping God. And it should be a spiritual discipline for us, I think. So I love going back and looking and seeing what God's done and seeing his faithfulness. What are some ways that you can do that? That you can remember God's faithfulness in your life and in your story. Abraham plants this tree in the desert and then he calls God by a new name, El Alam, which is everlasting God. Remember, God gave Abraham a new name, and now Abraham gives God a new name as well because wells are going to disappear and trees are going to get cut down and lambs are going to grow up and die. Altars are going to crumble and trees are going to perish, but there is one God, the everlasting God, who remains, and this God has become the one that Abraham worships, and this God is his life-giving source. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter one, verse three, where it says, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You see, Abraham's faith is starting to look like the tree he planted. It's firmly rooted. And his faith is in bloom. And it's the faith he's gonna need as we enter the next scene in this story. Kent Hughes writes, faith is not grow in a greenhouse, but in the unpredictable climates of life. I want to pray for you. God, um, God, we're humbled, we're grateful. I know all of us can sit here this morning and look back on many, many ways that you've been so faithful and that you've kept your promises, and that in the desert you have brought about life so many times. And God, I pray that you would help us to be able to harvest those things as we walk through um, this new year especially, knowing that you're God, knowing that you're the everlasting one, knowing that you're faithful. And God, I pray um, that if there are people in this room that don't yet know you, that they would place their faith and trust in you today, knowing that you're the only one who remains. You are truly the everlasting God. We thank you and praise you for that truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.